I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for hanging in with this series. This has been kind of, uh, kind of interesting and, and a little bit helter-skelter. Never know where we're going from week to week, but we know we're going to talk about battling mediocrity. So thank you for being a part of this. This is uh, part seven of a series that we call Battling Mediocrity. We decided to tackle this, this subject because we really do believe that excellence honors God and inspires people. And when we say excellence, we don't mean perfection. We have to remind ourselves of that. We don't mean perfection. What we mean is simply the very best that we can bring in every place we find ourselves. So today I want to talk about a topic that isn't a Christian problem or a church problem. It's a human problem. It's a challenge we all face on some level. I think we all do battle with this on some level. And in the context of this conversation about mediocrity and battling mediocrity, I think this issue has the potential to derail us, to steal our focus, and to lead us to a place where the best we can hope for is mediocrity. Because left unchecked, it leads to dysfunction in all of our relationships. It leads to toxicity in our interactions with others. It leads to a negative outlook on the world around us. And in many cases, it leaves us feeling like not only does everyone around us not measure up, but that we don't measure up, that we aren't enough. So the point we've been making throughout this series is that no matter what area of life we're talking about, as a follower of Jesus, we've been invited into so much more than mediocre, so much more than getting by, so much more than merely surviving. Like life for the follower of Jesus and life in the kingdom of God, in the here and now, that's guided by the values that Jesus taught, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is a life that is thriving. It's a life that is flourishing. It's a life that Jesus called rich and satisfying. That's what he invites us to experience, but we have often settled for much less. And perhaps one of the factors that leads us to settling and when you think about it, it's kind of ironic, but this topic this morning, while we, we think we're reaching for some lofty standard, it always falls flat when we lean into this thing we're going to talk about today, because we pretty much, we're all, pretty much always missing whatever expectation that we've established. And so we settle, and we settle for less, and we settle for less than what we've expected, and we settle for less than Jesus has called us to. So today, I want to talk about control. We have a desire for control. It's an, and you're like, not nah, me so much. Yep. See right there, you wanted to, you wanted to control the conversation. See, right? So let's acknowledge. We all have this desire for control. It's an innate thing. We just want to have a sense of control because we are convinced, <clears throat> like really, we really believe <clears throat> that if we can just be in control, like, if we can be in control, we can avoid mediocrity, right? It, like, the best way to guarantee the best outcome of just about any scenario in any area of our lives is to have as much control as possible. I think the pandemic experience over the last couple of years has actually been quite revealing, and I don't think it's increased our desire for control so much as it's revealed the desire for control that may have been lurking under the surface all along. Because think back over the last two years and how often you felt like everything was just out of control. Because you thought, well, when will things get back to normal? And this desire to control what you believed you could control was maybe stronger and more blatant than ever before. Did you, ever, did you, have you, did you feel that way at all in the last couple of years? Because I certainly have. And it's great now that the pandemic is officially over and all we, <laughs> and all we have to think about now, controlling now, is the potential for World War III right? So 
What are you thinking about today? What are we trying to control, right? I want to start by talking about the word control freak. If that just made you uncomfortable, I understand. Who do you think of when I say control freak? Like, don't say that out loud. But is their last name in-law? You know, like, do you think maybe a friend or a neighbor or uh, maybe someone who's sitting next to you, don't elbow them right now. Maybe you think of a teacher that you had or have. You think of a boss that, of course, a boss you had. You think of a, of a coach that you maybe had in school when you hear the word control freak. So I did a little research and I found some great stuff that's been written about this idea of control freaks. And here are some common traits of a control freak. Number one, a control freak expends a lot of energy trying to stop bad from happening trying to avoid bad things from happening to them or to other people. It could look, like, it could look as, as simple as like parents doing their kids' homework for them. I mean, and I read that, and I'm like, why would a parent want to do their kids' homework? Like, I like to nerd out on things, and I enjoy homework, but I'm not doing my kids' homework. Why would a parent want to do their kids' homework? Like, do they miss school that much, right? Are they so nostalgic? You know, here's why. They're doing their kids' homework because they're afraid that if their kids had to do their homework on their own, they may not get a good grade. And if they don't get a good grade, they may not pass this class. And if they don't pass this class, it may reflect poorly on their transcript. And if it reflects poorly on their transcript, they may not get into the college that the parents want them to go to. And if they don't get into the right college that their parents want them to go to, they may not get the education they need to get the job that their parents want them to have. And if they don't get the job their parents want them to have, they may have to work 50 hours a week at a job they don't like. And if they have to work at a job they don't like, they probably will drive them to destructive coping habits. That's why parents do their kids' homework. It's about letting our minds go to the worst-case scenario and trying to stop bad things from happening. Number two, control freaks spend a lot of energy trying to convince other people to change. They're trying to convince other people that they need to change. Oh, they need to do this. Oh, you know what she needs to do? Oh, you know what he needs to do? You know what the church needs to do? You know what my boss needs to do? Control freaks want everyone else to change, but in their minds, the last person that needs to change is themselves. Here's another one. Number three, control freaks micromanage or fail to delegate in an effort to meet their expectations. The key phrase that you'll hear from control freaks is, oh, I'll just do it myself. I'll just take care of it myself. You know what? You know what? You know what? Never mind. It'll be easier if I just do it myself. You know, it'll be faster if I just do it. It'll be done right if I do it myself. Control freaks struggle to delegate. They struggle to work with other people because they want to meet their own expectations. Now, newsflash. I struggle with this. And maybe you do too. Number four, control freaks lack compassion for people who make mistakes. They see people and right away they judge them. Sometimes they judge them passive-aggressively. We've seen this a lot in the last couple of years. I've seen it in myself the last couple of years. Like, you're walking through the store, right? And that person doesn't have their mask on. Or that person doesn't have their mask over their nose. What, they must be mouth breathers, you know? They don't, do they not, don't they know there are rules? Don't they know that, you know? They're so self-absorbed, they don't care about other people. Through the I know you never thought that, but through the COVID pandemic, it's like we found new ways to judge people because maybe it's about why aren't they getting the vaccine or why are they getting the vaccine or why are they so fearful? It's not a big deal. Or why aren't they taking this more seriously? It's all over the place. 
And then there's this trend toward cancel culture, right, that's just escalated in the last two years. Like, we got opinions, and we're going to pump it out on social media because I'm so persuasive that I can influence, like, multitudes of people to see it my way if I just post this meme. So anyway, a few weeks ago, I was putting together some ideas for this series. So back in January, in the first Sunday in January, I did one message on battling mediocrity, and I wasn't planning for this to be a series. Uh, But then I got some feedback from some of you and decided, okay then, let's spend some time talking about this uh, and talk about various areas of our lives. So when I teach in a series, I like to kind of map things out for a few weeks because I'm a bit of a control freak. And usually I'll just jot down some major ideas for where, like major topic ideas, and then kind of add the content bit by bit. So I've known for a few weeks that I wanted to talk about this control thing. And I've been looking forward to it because, well, I've been looking forward to it and I kind of haven't. Because, like, I knew that I could figure I could probably give you something helpful. It'd be super helpful for you. Um, And then I thought maybe I could learn some things myself. Because I I need to, I mean, I I need to acknowledge this. I have been accused of being a control freak. I have. I know it's crazy. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Because I am a control freak. This has been a struggle in my life for a long time because there's, there's this constant battle between excellence and perfection and pushing myself to some expectation is one thing, but pushing myself you know, to some expectation and then pushing the other people around me to the same expectation is another thing, right? And left unaddressed, that's not healthy and it's certainly not life-giving and it's something that I've actually seen quite a bit of growth in the last few years thanks to some of your help. I think if we're, if we're really honest if you're really honest, I think we're all control freaks in certain areas of our lives. We want to be in control of the outcomes of this relationship or that relationship. We want to control outcomes when it comes to things like finances or that job or that position. We find ourselves taking defensive positions towards people in authority. Like, we don't like it when word comes down from the head office. We don't like it when the teacher makes us. We don't like it, you know, when the parent makes us. We don't like it. We want to have certain control in certain areas of our lives because we're all control freaks because you and I like to be in control. It's that simple. It's It's not complicated. It's not me psychoanalyzing you, but you like to be in control. I like to be in control of my life. We like to be in control of our lives. That's a human default. And at the root of control, now we're going to really get into this. At the root of control... Is power. Like, we want to have power over what happens to us, over how we spend our time. We want to have power over what happens at work. We want to have power over our finances. At the root of control is power, and we don't like being powerless. You don't like being powerless, and neither do I. We don't like it when the word comes down from the head office or from corporate or from the CEO. We don't like it when we aren't given a choice. We don't like it when someone comes along and says, this is the way it's going to be. Because we don't like to be powerless and we don't like to feel powerless. And we don't like it when relationships make us feel powerless. And we don't like to be powerless in circumstances. So, a two-sided question. (laughs) What do you do when you're powerless? And what do you do when you have power? And I know this is a bit counterintuitive uh, because as control, th- uh, con- con- control freaks, you would think that the first thing that we would have to say would, you know, would be about what everybody else should do, because you know, I think everybody else should change. And, uh, but I want to talk not about what everybody else should do. 
But let's talk about what we should do in the area of power and control. So the question is, who do you have power over? Like, who do you have power over? And then how do the people you have power over experience you? And you're like, oh, great, I get a pass on this one because I, um, I don't have any power over anybody. There's just nobody I have power over. Wrong. The truth is we all have power over somebody. Like, obviously, let's say you're an employer or you're a manager or you're a supervisor or you have, you know, like you have the power to hire and fire or you have power to influence the person who has the power to hire and fire. Like, so then you might think right away of your employees. And if your employee, here's the deal, a little secret. You have some power over your employer because you can decide not to show up on time. You can decide not to work very hard. You can decide not to bring your best to the workplace, or you can decide to work harder, to show up earlier, to stay later, to spend more time, to give more of yourself, uh, all those things, right? They impact the person who has authority over you. If you're a parent, you have power you know, with your kids, right? Right? Like if you're a parent, you like to think so. If you're a parent, like you know this is true, right? When your child makes certain decisions or acts in a certain way or speaks in a certain way, you have power, you do, to require some consequences. Uh, like if you're a teacher, uh, you have power over students, in theory. There are, are kinds of, these are kind of obvious ones, right? But there are lots of areas where you have power over people, and we have to acknowledge that, first of all. In, in nearly every situation, we have some power over the people around us, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. We have some power over people around us. So what are you doing with that power? And, and this is important, and I think it's important for us to think about honestly and to know this about relationships. In relationships, here's something we know intuitively about relationships, that control doesn't inspire, influence does. If I said to you, give me a list of the people who've controlled you in your life, a list of the people who've controlled you in your life, is that a positive list or a negative list? Probably 100% of the time, it's a negative list. But if I said, give me a list of the people who have influenced you, the people who have inspired you, most of those people are going to be like people, like, like mentors and friends and teachers that you had and a boss that you had or maybe a youth leader or a camp counselor or a coach, right? Influence inspires. Control doesn't inspire. So in the relationships in your life where you have power, how do you use your power to gain influence and inspire people? Because isn't that the kind of person that you want to be? It's the kind of person I want to be. It's the kind of person I want all of us to be. The kind of person who gains influence and inspires the people around them that when people interact with them, they're just like, man, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know, I'm like growing. I'm like becoming a better person. There's something about them that's just kind of inspiring me. That's the kind of people that we want to be. So here's the thing. <clears throat> Jesus had a lot to say about power. And so today I want to look at what Jesus has to say about power and control and influence and inspiration. And I want to talk maybe even more powerfully than what he said, what he actually did. We're going to look at a passage in John 13. It's the account of something that happened uh, that involved Jesus and his disciples. And you may be familiar with this passage, but I'm hoping today we can kind of see something fresh here. This is how it starts in John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour uh, had come to leave this world and return to his father. So it's important here is that Jesus is with his disciples. And he knew that the hour was coming when he would give his life. He would die on the cross. He knew that was coming around the corner. 
says he loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. I think this is great. And you know what? I think, I think we skip over this part. Like how many times have we actually sat and thought about that? It's just kind of tucked in here before you get to the story that we're all familiar with, right? But it just shows the heart of Jesus. He loved them to the very end. Verse 2. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, if you're, I don't want to go too fast over this. If you're new to faith or you're exploring the Christian faith, you might see this and think, the devil? Like you just read, the devil had already prompted. Like you just read that like that was normal. Like what is this? What is it about the Christian faith where they believe in a devil like this? So let's just think about this for a moment. You've experienced evil thoughts, either something that you thought and acted on, probably something you know isn't right, and you would even admit, yeah, that was wrong. Or maybe it's something that someone else has thought and acted on, and maybe you've been on the receiving end of that, like you're the victim of their behavior. So when you think about it, uh, we've all experienced on one side or the other, or perhaps both, these kinds of promptings. And we think, yeah, I probably uh, shouldn't do that, but I kind of want to do that. So regardless of what you think about the concept of the person of the devil, whether you think the devil is an actual being or simply a personification of evil, because we don't need to get into that today. It'd be fun to do sometime, maybe over coffee. But So here's the deal. We've all experienced this. And so Judas was prompted to do something evil. And Judas knows, or Jesus knows, as they show up for supper, that Judas is not only going to be prompted, but he's going to act on the prompting, and that Jesus is going to die as a result. So then it says something incredibly important, and I think so many of us miss this as well. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he'd come from God and would return to God. So Jesus walks into supper, and John writes this because he wants us to know. He, in fact, John says this in chapter 20 near the end of his book, of his gospel. He says that I've written all this so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life by the power of his name. Like Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. There's power in his name. So Jesus shows up for supper, and he knows this. I have all authority. I've got all power. Jesus is fully human and fully God, and he knows that he's the most powerful person in the room, the most powerful person in the city, the most powerful person in the country, the most powerful person in the world, right? He knows that. Like, what would you do? What would you do if you knew you were the most powerful person on the planet? I think, I think we're seeing right now, this week, on the other side of the globe, what happens when someone actually believes they're the most powerful person in the world, and it's not good. What do you do when you know you're the most powerful person in the room? I mean, what, what should Jesus do? You would expect, you know, like Jesus sits down with his disciples and is like, okay, hey guys, now we're near the end, and we're, it's about time we monetize this thing. We're going to get rich. We got a ton of influence here. We're gonna, we got some power with people. We're going to enrich ourselves. Or Jesus sits down with the disciples and says, okay, the time has come. We're going to become political icons. We're going to become kings. I mean, I'm all powerful. You're my inner circle. It's time, you know? Or Jesus sits down and at the very least, would, would he not sit the disciples down, the other 11 disciples, knowing what he knows? Wouldn't he say to them, like, guys, you may not know this, but Judas is going to betray me. So I think we should take him out back and show him what real power is. But none of that happens. So what does Jesus do, knowing he's got all power? Verse 4. <laughs> so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. 
poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. So think about this. Jesus comes into the room. <laughs> he's, got, <clears throat> he's got all power, all authority. He takes his outer garment off, puts a towel around his waist, takes the nature of a lowly servant who would have been there to wash their feet when they arrived. I don't know if the, the servant didn't show. I think it's more likely Jesus gave him the night off and probably paid him well and said, this is my plan all along, so go enjoy a night off. And Jesus gets on his knees and he washes their feet. Think about the moment as he works his way around the room. Think about the moment when he gets to Judas. And he washes Judas' feet. And he puts his foot in his lap. And he pours water over his dirty feet. And he dries his feet with the towel. And he knows this guy, before they leave this room, this guy is going to betray him. He's going to turn him over to the authorities, and as a result, Jesus is going to be sentenced to an agonizing death, and Jesus is on his knees washing his feet. And after washing their feet, verse 12, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? Like, do you get it? Do you guys understand what's happening here? Do you understand what I'm doing, what I'm showing you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. Like, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, you're right, that's what I am. You call me a person of power, you're right, that's what I am. But, I wash your feet. The most powerful person in the universe, on his knees, washing people's feet. And he didn't, like, set aside his power. He was still all-powerful. But he made the choice in humility to wash their feet. And what Jesus is saying is when it comes to power, power is made perfect in humility. Power is made perfect in humility. He doesn't just illustrate it to them when he washes their feet. He washes it to, or he illustrates it to, to me and to you. When, when still having all power, he, he hangs on a cross in humility, having the power to come down at any point, but in all humility, staying on the cross so that you and I could be made right with God, so that you and I could have forgiveness of sin, so that you and I could know redemption and a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father, and so that all of creation can be restored to its rightful purpose to bring glory to the Creator. Jesus is all about power in all humility. If you're, if you're new to the Christian faith or you're wondering what makes the Christian faith different from other world religions, I would say any other religion, in all those other religions... It's all about how much uh, you can do to get to God, right? Like, like what you can attain and how, this, how this, the balance works out, how many good works you can do. But in the Christian faith, it's about a God who said, there's nothing you can do to get to me. You can try, ain't going to work, you're going to fall short. So I'm going to send my son in all of his power and in all of humility so that you can have a restored relationship with me. You can have forgiveness of sins, you can live in that freedom, you can be made right with me, and you and I can have a restored relationship. Jesus is about power made perfect in humility. And then he says this, verse 14. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. <clears throat> What's Jesus saying? First of all, you have power. You do. You have power. I have power. We all have some power. He says, your power is made perfect in humility. So take your power and couple it with humility. So, so what is humility? I think C.S. Lewis has the best definition of humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. 
Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Doesn't mean you become a doormat. Everybody walks all over you. You just give up all the power and you just let everybody do whatever they want in your life. That's, that's not what it is. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And the question is, what are you doing with power and are you leaning into humility? Like it could look like this, like you can lean into pride and fear on one side or, or, or you can lean into humility. Like those are really the choices that you have. And I think so often we lean into pride and we lean into fear. Like if you're a parent, you get this. Like we lean into pride because we want our kids to like turn out a certain way and like we have success defined for them in a certain way or, or maybe we're afraid and we're afraid like something's going to happen to them or we're afraid they're going to get hurt somehow. We're afraid that they're going to make a mistake maybe and bring shame to us or, or they're going to bring real consequences on themselves. It's pride and it's fear. And so what do we do with our power when we're leaning into pride and fear? What we do is we control. We try to control. We try to control people and we try to control outcomes. And here's the truth. You can make progress this way. Like you can sometimes get the outcome that you want, but are you inspiring anybody? Because the flip side of this is to lean into humility and to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lean into humility. And when you do that, you gain influence in people's lives. How do you know the difference? How do you know which way you're leaning? I think you know you're controlling when you're just busy making a point. And, I, and you know you're influencing when you're working on making a difference. Like, if you're in charge in your workplace, if you're a business owner or a manager or a supervisor, like, why wouldn't you want your employees to be better fathers and better mothers and better husbands and better wives and better people because they work for you, because they're accountable to you? Like, that's more than authority, right? That's more than power. That's influence. Like, don't we all want something that ripples beyond us, something that makes a difference, like from generation to generation? Like, don't we want to see people's lives change because they rub shoulders with us? And yeah, we still want to make some progress. Like, we want to move forward. We want to see some things improve, like maybe become more efficient in our workplace and maybe make some money and be even more profitable. That'd be great. But, but wouldn't we rather accomplish that through influence rather than simply through authority and positions of power? And the more that we lean into pride and fear and control that can naturally flow out of power and authority, the more we lean into that, pride, fear, and control, the more we start to function, listen, from a filter of cynicism. Like, no one else can do this right, so I just got to control it. I need to get the outcomes I need to get. And this can become the filter that we live our lives through, like our entire lives through, instead of like, how can I influence and inspire the people around me? So why is this important? Why does it matter? Well, first of all, your power is temporary. Like your authority is temporary. There's a moment in John 19, a few chapters over from the story where we are right now, where Jesus is beaten and bloody and a lot of men would have died from the beating he got. And he's standing there before Pilate. Remember Pilate? And Pilate says to him, why don't you speak up? Like they're making all these accusations. Why don't you say something? Defend yourself. I have power to make this stop. And Jesus says to Pilate, all the power you have is a power you get from my Father. And the power that you have, this power can be taken away. And you know what? When you read history, that happened to Pilate. Like four or five years after he oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus, he's removed from his position and he loses all of his power. The power that we have over anyone could be gone the next day. So what are we doing with the temporary power that we have? Like how are we going to steward it? 
because you can try to, cut, uh, try to control people with your power. You can try to do that. You can cut, try to control people with authority that comes with a position, but control uh, gives your temporary power a short-term purpose. Like, you can control the people around you and get the results you want at work. You can control your spouse and get the immediate results you want for short term. You can control your children and get the immediate results you want for the short, for the short term. See that, but that's a short term purpose. It doesn't inspire anyone. But here's the other side. Influence. Influence gives your temporary power an eternal purpose. A purpose that ripples through people's lives. It's a power that, that's influencing people around you to, to the point where their lives are being changed and they're experiencing something new and life-giving and they're being inspired by you. So, so here's a question that's kind of haunting. Like, what if you were to get to the end of your life and you were to look back at your life and you realize you spent your power, your temporary power, grasping for control and empty of influence on anyone? Like, what if you're remembered as a control freak? But on the flip side, what if you look at your power and your authority that you know is temporary anyway and you spent it on influence that inspires. So how do you do that? Like, where do we start? I'm going to suggest that growing influence begins when we add value to the people around us. The people that you work for, the people you work with, the people who work for you, the people you live with, your spouse, your kids, adding value to the people around you. What do I mean by that? To value someone is to see them and see their potential. When you genuinely value someone, you find ways to be present with them. You believe in them. You encourage them. To add value to someone is is really to make them better people. So let's talk about this for a minute and get as practical as I can get. First of all, adding value to people starts with seeing the value in people. And we may need to just start there. Like when we read the Gospels of four accounts of the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus and watching him walk through those years with his disciples and all of his followers and friends and those who stood in opposition to him, all of his interactions with people, the takeaway from all of those accounts, bottom line, Jesus values people. Like Nicodemus would say, Jesus values me. The Samaritan woman would say, Jesus values me. All those people who came to him with all kinds of sickness and physical ailments would say, Jesus values me. All those kids who were drawn to be with Jesus would say, Jesus values me. All the lepers and social outcasts would say, Jesus values me. All the women in these towns and villages would say, Jesus values me. The thief on the cross would say, Jesus values me. Like he told stories like the story of the lost sheep and how the good shepherd would leave the 99 who are already safe in the fold to go find the one lost sheep because of the value of that sheep. And he told about the prodigal son who when he came home was welcomed with open arms by his loving father. Like you just listen to the words of Jesus and you read about how he treated people. Jesus values people. Oh, in case you're wondering, I just want you to know he values you too. Like I don't even need to know you to value you. Because I believe that God created you. He created you in His image. And since you're created in the image of God, you have value. And I value you because God values you. I think this is kind of needed, really needed, in the time and culture like we are living in where there's so much us versus them. It's everywhere. 
we devalue others because they don't look like us, because they don't have the same backstory as us. Maybe they came here from another country and English isn't their first language, or they don't vote like us. Listen. It all begins with valuing people because Jesus values them. I think as followers of Jesus, listen, we have to make a choice. We have to decide. Am I going to spend my life controlling people or connecting with people? Like, am I going to spend my life correcting them or celebrating them? Let's admit it. The church has a well-earned reputation of being controllers and correctors. Like, we have leaned hard into that accusation, all right? And I think we would be much more effective at living out the values of the kingdom of God, as Jesus taught us, if we would start valuing every person, period, end of story, no questions asked, valuing them with the love of Jesus. That would be so attractive to a world that's looking for value in all the wrong places. We can't add value to people if we don't genuinely value them. You can't fake your way through this process. So number one, value people. Number two, look for ways to add value to people. Like be creative. Be intentional. Discovering ways to add value to people around you requires a level of intentionality that most of us just aren't used to. This really is about like upfront thinking about it. It's getting out ahead of an opportunity. Like how many times have we missed opportunities to add value to people because we haven't given any thought ahead of time about how to add value to the people in our lives? Adding value to people requires that I take notice, that I have my receptors out, that I think of ways to add value to the people in my life. And here's the thing, adding value looks different for just about everyone in your life. That's why you have to be creative. That's why you have to put some intentional thought into it. It might be as simple and deliberate as as thinking through your day, like looking at your schedule for each day, or maybe your days are pretty repetitive and predictable, so you can easily think about the people you're going to interact with today and ask, how can I add value to them today? Then number three, so we see value in people. We look for ways to add value. Number three, we actually add value. So we move from looking and thinking to doing And at the end of the day, ask yourself, did I add value to someone today? Did I add value to anyone today? This is different from control. This is like the other side. And what would it mean to choose humility in how we use our power with people around us? Here's the thing we need to remember and I'm going to be done. Here's why you can do this. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's why you can do this. Because you have access to the power of God through the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe who sent His Son, who with all power and in all humility gave His life for you. And He's in your corner, like He's been in your corner all along, And he wants to see you grow, to grow more and more into the likeness of the one that we follow, into the likeness of the one that we serve and worship, to be more and more like Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as we talk about control and we just acknowledge, I'll just speak for the people in the room and for all of us, we just acknowledge our utter dependence on you. Because we'd like to think that our plans are great. Because like we've thought things through and we're pretty smart people and we've got it figured out and we know what's best. But the truth is, and the scripture says that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. So we just want to be clear that we trust in your ways and we trust in your thoughts. And this is not to say, Lord, that we don't have responsibility. We understand that. That we have a responsibility to act in a way, to make decisions in a way that reflect the character of Jesus, that reflect the values of his kingdom, that reflect the will of the Father in our lives. So, Father, show us what it means for each of us. Show us what it means to guard our hearts, to guard our hearts from the pride of thinking that we know best, to guard our hearts from the arrogance of thinking that we got everything under control, to guard our hearts from thinking that if we could just have our way, things would work out great. Like, show us what it means to guard our hearts because we understand that it's from our heart that determines the direction of our lives. So this week, through your Holy Spirit, help us to see the opportunities you put in our lives every day throughout the day to add value to the people around us. Lord, may this become a way of life for us to add value to the people around us simply because they're made in your image and they matter so much to you. And in this way, we can know without a doubt that we are living out the values of the kingdom of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name.